from dream to destiny. Now, if you ask any sane person, do you want to do something with your life, or do you want to fulfill the purpose in your life that God has created you for, they will say yes. And we discussed this dream. We're talking about the life of Joseph, the ten things that he went through in his life for him to fulfill the destiny that God created him for. Okay? How many of you believe that God created you for a reason? The Bible says that God knew you in your mother's womb. We all, we all have a destiny, and what God does is he, he puts a dream in our heart that, that tries to inspire us to pursue this destiny. It's a calling. It's our calling, okay? Now, can there be competitive dreams? Yes, we talked about that last week. You can have your own dreams. I have the dream of living in a one-room cabin in Montana. Every time I watch Longmire and he steps off that front porch and he's looking at the mountains and the trees, I'm like, oh, Christy, are we doing the right thing? And she goes, of course, you idiot. Don't question God. But God has a dream for us. And, and so what, it, what is it that would keep us from fulfilling the destiny of God? If God's got the will, God's got the power, God's got the way and all that, apparently it's on our part to partner with God. You see, because we get too focused on, some people put all the weight on us, you know, in our doings and whatnot, remove God from the equation, that's destined to fail. You dang sure won't. You'll achieve your dreams maybe, but not God's. And then sometimes we put it all on God, and then we just, you know, sit down, suck our thumb, and say, okay, God, I'm waiting on you. No, he's wanting us to grow up, be mature Christians. And what he's trying to do is, is like I said uh, earlier in James, rejoice when you go through trials. Peter says that, you know, that, that these things we go through, they build endurance, and endurance builds virtue. What is God trying to do? He's trying to change our character. To be like who? Jesus. To be like his son. And so what we must do is, these are basically ten character tests that Joseph went through. God's trying to change our character, our nature, uh, who we are from the inside out. And so these are ten tests that we've got to pass to change our character. We've got to understand that. And the first and foremost thing, like, like Rachel said this morning, we've got to know that God loves us that God's for us, and that even when He disciplines us, He does it for our good, because He loves us. You know, I used to, God, I remember when I, you know, when I was little, I wanted to do things so bad, I'm like, God, Dad, you're mean, why won't you let me, why won't you let me go out and play in the pool, even though I can't swim? Why won't, let, why won't you let me play Legos in the middle of the street? You know, come on, Dad, what's your deal? And then when you grow up and have kids, you're like, man, I may be crazier than my own dad was, you know. I don't want my kids to die needless death. And you see, God loves you. God doesn't want you to, 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 to go through life uh, ineffectively and unfruitful and, 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 and to suffer needlessly. And so go to Genesis 37, and uh, we'll begin there. I'm going to read to you. 37, 13 through 24. All right, it says, And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now. See if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So Jacob is sending his son Joseph to go check on his brothers, right? That's kind of odd, and we'll talk about that in a moment. 
says, go, so he says, so he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. So who found who? So Joseph is supposed to go to his brothers and find them, see how they're doing, report to his father. But what is he doing? It says he's wandering in the fields. So not only was he a dreamer, he was a daydreamer. He was just wandering around like, hey. And then, and then somebody finds him and they say, uh, what are you doing? He goes, I'm looking for my brothers. And so, uh, so he's like, oh, yeah, that's right. Thank you for reminding me. He says, and a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, what are you seeking? He says, I am seeking my brothers. He said, tell me, please, for they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, they have gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. It says, they saw him from afar. Before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. So these guys had a pretty bad attitude with their brother, didn't they? It says, they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of the hand, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said unto them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of the hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into the pit. The pit was empty, and there was no water in it. That's a bad place to be, in a pit with not even a drop of water to drink. That's pretty much a guaranteed way of dying. There's a story one time of a man who was getting off of work, and it was kind of late, and he was going to go home. And so instead of taking the long route, he said, I'm going to skip through the graveyard and get back to the house. So he's walking through the graveyard in the middle of night, but, to, to, but unknowns to him, there was an open grave in the middle of this graveyard. And so as, he, as he's strolling along through the graveyard, kind of trotting along to her to get home, he falls in this open pit, in this grave. And man, he dug and he strove and he tried and he, and he pleaded and he tried to get out of this hole until finally he just got completely exhausted. So he just sat in the corner of this grave thinking, well, tomorrow somebody will come by and I can get some help. Well, later that night, there was a drunk leaving the tavern. And he's going through the cemetery. And as he's going through there, he's strolling along, and bam, he falls into the pit himself. And he does the same thing as the other man. He, he screams, and he cries, and he digs, and he's like, man. And, and he, he eventually says, there's no way for me to get out of this pit. And all of a sudden, out of that dark corner, a hand came out and touched him. And he says, don't try. You can't get out of this pit. But he did. You see, with proper motivation, we can get out of the pit. Amen? Now, don't take this motivation as a self thing, but with proper wisdom of the Word and proper know-how, we can get out of the pit. How many of you want to get out of your pits? Stinking pits. Amen? 
So, what is, so the first thing we'll look at is what is the position of the pit? How do we end up in a pit? You know, we, 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 I said earlier, you know, uh, God disciplines those whom he loves. We said rejoice when various trials fall upon you. You know, all things work together for those that love Jesus. Amen? All things work to the good. And uh, we sang a song about it this morning. So what, what happens is when we find ourselves in a pit. Now listen, there's, a pit is a pit, okay? A pit seems like a hopeless situation. A pit is, is pretty bad. I mean, you know, we, you're going to have things happen day in and day out, but not all of them are pits. But I'm talking about when you just really find yourself in a bottom with no hope, and how do I get out of this? You know, how do, what is, what is the, the position of this pit? How do we get out of it? What is the purpose of it? And what we need to do is when we, when we find ourselves in a pit, we need to do some soul searching. And this is what people need to do. They need to learn to search their souls. You know, the Bible says we have communion. What do we do? We're to examine ourselves. Why, you know, I believe that's one of the most important parts of communion is when we come together to examine ourselves. To me, communion is a, is a, is a checkpoint with Jesus. I mean, it's a mile marker. Jesus wants us to, Jesus doesn't want us to, you know, get lost in the sauce and not, and not think about what's going on. Say, God, what's really going on in my life? God, you know, what am I doing in my life that's preventing me from moving forward? What character do you want to, to change in me? God, where do I need to repent in my life? We, we know this, that, that this is what you have to realize. When you become a Christian, your position is fixed. Amen? You're, it's fixed. You're either a child of the king or you're not. You didn't earn it. You can't lose it. But there's a walk with the Lord that He wants us to walk with Him, and He wants us to grow, and He wants us to be fruitful. And, and through, through life and through the Word, He's trying to pour into us so that we can begin to have His Son's character. You see, Joseph, when he fell in that pit, this is probably what he was thinking. He was thinking, man, those guys are jerks. They're hateful. He was probably thinking about all that... That, that his brothers did and what they were responsible for and why he was in the pit. But the reality of it is, is they hated him because he was full of pride and because he was daddy's boy and because he aggravated them and because he was a snitch. And so many of us today, we're in our 30s and our 40s and we're in pits that we have dug deeper because we refuse to, to say, let stuff go and because we want to be the victim. We want to live as the victim. Grow up. You know, my mother, my mother was, was raped when I was six months old in the house, in the baby bed. And you know what? And she still decided to be one of the best pastor's wives that, that ever was. My wife was molested as a little girl. But you know what? She doesn't, I haven't heard, she doesn't go around whining about it and saying, woe is me and Blaming God and everybody else, she's, she's decided to move on. And say, you know what, God still loves me and God can still use me and I can use this experience to, to teach others and to give them encouragement. And so many people, they live in pits because they want to be victims. And, and I, oh, you know, the, the acid test, when somebody comes in and they have a, a really bad past, I'm talking about, you know, you have somebody... Has, has been a child molester or whatnot, the first thing you look for is their humility. Are you humble? Or are you, you know, are you, are you the victim or are you the culprit? Because here's the deal. How do we get saved? We realize, Lord, I'm, a, I'm the culprit. I'm a dirty, rotten sinner. You know, and it's that humility that shows where our heart stands in our situation. Like, well, in other words, 
you know, there's, now it's not her fault that she got raped. It's not her fault that she got molested. But you know what? There, on, an, on another note, there's things that we do. That you know what? You need to own up to what you did. You need to own up to what you did. And you need to get over what other people did. Because here's what life is all about. It's not so much what we did. It's our response to what, what happened. It's our response. And our response needs to be a godly response. Our response needs to be, God, what do you say? God, what do I do, and how do we get healing in this situation? But jo- Joseph could have played the victim, and he could have blamed everybody else. You know what? We need to, when we get in the pit, we need to quit blaming everybody else while we're in the pit. We need to quit accusing everybody else, and we need to examine ourselves and say, God, what, ha- what is going on in my life right now? What is going on that, that what are you trying to do in my life? Because if God is lovingly disciplining you, you need to say, God, why am I lovingly be disciplined? My dad never disciplined me without first discussing the issue. First of all, it, it got him settled down where he wasn't mad enough to kill me and that he could discipline me properly. But first of all, I wasn't just getting nailed and not knowing what's going on. And so many people today, God has lovingly disciplined them and they're saying, oh, the devil's attacking me. God can use the devil to attack you like he did Job, but here's the deal. The thing is this, is that what, what is God trying to speak into your life? And we try to ignore what God's trying to speak in our life, and we pass the blame, we pass the buck, and we, we try to come up for some alternative uh, example or reason why it's going on. So we see here, though, that all the brothers are out working the sheep, and Joseph is at home. Why wasn't Joseph with his brothers in the first place? Why? Because Jacob knew that his brothers hated him. You know, it's, it's believed this, that Jacob had to keep him home to kind of keep him alive. And, but, but it was his hope that one day that Jacob would grow up, um, Joseph would grow up and begin to gain some credibility with his brothers and be accepted by them. And so he says, hey, go check on your brothers. Now, is it necessary for a 17-year-old to go check on a bunch of guys who are somewhere in their 30s and 40s watching sheep? Is it really necessary to send a teenager who has absolutely no idea about this type of business to, to check on them? Heck no. You know, it's believed that, that, that Jacob wanted him to go out there and maybe, you know, build a relationship. But did it work out that way? No. No, it didn't work out that way. Because it says they saw him from afar off and they plotted to kill him. Right off the bat. That's pretty hard to build, to, to build a relationship that is uh, that, that broken. Genesis 37, if you go to 18, it says, They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. That means you're unliked. If, you're, if, if they're trying to kill you, like they didn't have sniper rifles, and if they did, they'd have probably just shot him. But they had to do it in close quarters. It says, They said to each other, Here comes the dreamer. But anyway, how, how did they know from afar that this was Joseph coming to see them? How did, this coat. This blasted coat. This big, beautiful, elaborate, colorful coat. It, it's, like, it's like if Jessica dressed one of us up in one of those dance costumes those girls had on yesterday, and you went to Walmart, you would stand out pretty good. Imagine William in a glittery tutu, you know? Coming through the doors of Walmart. 
They would probably have security. You know, they, you could go to Walmart and steal stuff, and they won't say nothing to you about it. But if he came in with a tutu, they'd probably freak the heck out and do something about it. Yeah, and so, yeah, and they would have pictures, and he would be on People of Walmart. And if you are on People of Walmart, we have an altar call at the end. We can pray for you. So they saw him afar because of this coat. Now, why, why did he have this coat? Well, who gave him the coat? His, his father. He had his father's favor, and he had his father's gift. Okay? Now, here's the problem, though. He was proudful. He was proudful of, of, of the gift that God had given him. And here, once again, going back to pride, today we have so many Christians... They're so proud of the gift that God has given them, but they don't take any thought for God. They begin to worship the gift. They begin to exalt themselves. And who does that sound like? Beelzebub, Satan, the devil. That's what got him kicked out of heaven. He said, hey, I'm a pretty good worship leader, being that he was the angel over worship. And uh, he exalted himself. And you know what? If you've got talents, and you, I'm sure you do, because the Bible says we all have something, don't exalt them too highly. See them as gifts, but glorify God. Glorify God, not the gifts that He's given to you. But here's what happened. Because of Jacob's arrogance and because of his pride in the gift, he lost the gift. Now, some of you are thinking in Romans where it says the, the gifts and the callings are, are irrevocable, okay? Well, first of all, let me say this. His daddy didn't take it from him. He lost it. He lost it. He lost the gift. He lost his jacket. But let me tell you this. Is that in his life, how many jackets do you think he had when he was the second in command of the whole world, basically? He probably had a lot more coats. He probably had plenty of coats. You see, repentance restores things. Amen? And, and the deal is, is in Romans there, it's talking about the Jews. It's not talking about you, but so many people. Look how many people, they get into high places in worship and pastoring and all these things, but they don't have the character, and they fall, and they lose their positions. But we say, well, the gifts and callings are irrevocable. Here's the deal. God doesn't steal them. We refuse to walk in what God has given us, and we glorify the gift and not Him. And God can say, look, I can turn your eyes towards me. But here's the thing, repentance brings restoration in our life. And some of you say, well, Jacob, Joseph didn't get that coat back. Well, who, who's to say that Jacob didn't keep this coat for the rest of his life? I would imagine that he was so broken hearted, he probably washed that thing off and put it in a place. And, you know, and when he had a bad day or was depressed or whatever, he probably went and looked at it. You know? But here's the thing, what's more important than the gift being restored back to Joseph, that coat, he was restored to his father, 20 some odd years later. Amen? And this is what God is about, is us walking and being restored with Him. Because, we, like I said, our, 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 our salvation is positional. Our relationship is based on our obedience to Him and our walk with Him. And God doesn't go anywhere. But we can get off course and God says, hey, get your attention back here. So the perspective of the pit. You know, the position of the pit is there because... Of us. Something going on that God's trying to show us in our life. And we can't blame others. We can't be the victim. We've got to own up and say, God, what is going on in my life? What are you trying to speak into my life? Now, is this, here's the deal, though. What if you can't find anything? 
then you just journey on. Amen? Doesn't mean that every bad thing happens, but you know, a pit is, a pit, a pit is significantly a pit. It's deep, it's dark, and there's no water in there, and there's no hope. So the perspective of the pit, you see, uh, let's see, uh, Genesis 37, 31 through 33. Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. And so we see this, that these guys brought their father the coat of of Joseph. Now, did they say anything? All they said is this, is this just your son's coat? See, they didn't even have to really lie. They just said, is this your son's coat? They didn't tell him anything. You know what? Jacob assumed what happened by seeing the coat. And so what I want to tell you is this, when we're in the pit, there's two perspectives of why we're in the pit. There's God's perspective of why we're in the pit, but then there's also Satan's perspective of why we're in the pit. Because Satan wants you, obviously, to be the victim. Satan wants you to blame it away on everybody else. Satan wants you to blame it on just something that isn't what God is trying to show in your life. But, but we see here that these guys, they brought this jacket to, to their father, and here's what Satan did. Satan sometimes won't only lie, but he will fabricate evidence that the lie is true. Satan will go through the trouble of fabricating evidence to show that it's true. The brothers didn't tell dad, hey, he was eaten by a wild beast, or they didn't say anything. They just said, hey, look, is this your son's? They put the ball in Jacob's court to make the decision. And he said, that is my son's. So to him, I mean, what more more evidence do you need than a jacket in front of you that's torn asunder and blood all over it that your son has been killed and mauled and he is now dead? This is what Jacob had before him. And for 20-something years, he had this as a reminder that your son is dead. He He was wounded by animals and he was devoured and he is gone. And you'll never see him again. Satan concocted the evidence to prove the lie. And you know what? Some of us today in our lives, things going on, Satan is trying to concoct evidence to get us to believe a lie. Satan is the father of lies. Satan can't say anything without lying. He can't say the truth. If he does say the truth, he's using it to to, to back a lie. You know, for for example, today, let's, let's say that, for example, in marriage, you know, people are married for a long time and and, and, and you start growing apart or whatever, and you look at the other person and you're like, man, we just, we're, just, we're not compatible. We're not compatible, you know? Maybe I married the wrong person. And then the guy starts going to a gym, and there's a good-looking blonde there, and she's working out, and he goes, you know, me and her have a lot in common. <laughs> me and her have a lot in common. Maybe this is the woman I should have married. You know, because we have something. You know, and what Satan does is he fabricates things to justify the lies that you're buying from Satan. And then before you know it, you're having you're having dreams that aren't godly dreams, and you're having you know prophetic words and are you know. I mean, it gets it gets it's disguised as God speaking. It's disguised as as truth, and it's not. It's Satan lying in our lives. 
So we've got to make sure that we get a godly perspective on things. And the only way you can keep to a godly perspective is through the Word of God. You've got to read the Word of God to keep things straight in your life. Uh, also, what we do is, and this is what people do today, is, is they're in a pit by their own doing, but they, they, they love to say, well, Jesus doesn't want to condemn me. And He doesn't. What He wants to do is to free you from yourself and give you some, 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 a better quality of life. So, so when, God, when God's perspective is this, it's specific. There's an issue that God wants to work in your life. But Satan's perspective is condemnation. There's no hope. There's no way out. There's no fix. You know, and he's very general. In other words, you're just, you know, there's, there's no sense in even trying. You know, everybody knows John 3.16. God so loved the whole world that he gave his only begotten son. Amen? Well, here, no, most people don't read this. John 3.17-18. through 18. For God did not send his son into the world, what? To condemn the world. So what does it say? Did not, did not, did not, did not. You get that? Did he or did he not? He did not. He did not send his son to the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Well, let's read on to 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. God does not condemn believers, but God convicts believers for their good. Because he loves them. It says, but whosoever does... How, how is a person condemned? It says, but whosoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. You see, that's why we have to understand who we are in Christ. The difference between condemnation and conviction. And the fact that when people are lost, they cannot be talked to like they have a hope and they have a future. Because they don't. They don't. And today we're trying to reach people evangelistically by telling everybody, no, you don't have grace unless you're in grace, unless you're under grace, unless you've received grace, unless you've repented and believed in the name of Jesus Christ. And so we have to make sure that we have the perspective right. What is God's perspective of me being in this pit? Not what is Satan's perspective. What does he want me to believe? He wants me to be a victim. He wants me to you know, believe in lies and even go to the extent of fabricating evidence we need to seek things people people that every day you know we see good deals come by we're like oh it must be of god not necessarily maybe maybe satan is wanting to pull you out pull you away from the word from his family from whatever it is out of relationship with god so you got to test these things through the word of god and through prayer so number three the purpose of the pit what is the what is the ultimate purpose of the pit in our lives and I'm going to tell you this, the, 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 just the bottom line purpose for the pit in our lives is this, is so that we would cry out to God. It's so that we will turn our attention back to God, so that we would, would say, God, help me. So that we would be humbled once more, so that God can give grace to us. So that we could cry out to the Lord to say, God, I need you in my life. Lord, I need you to get through this. You see, it's like I said, we have responsibilities, but it all, all ultimately comes down to God. Never rely on yourself. Never put your confidence in your own self. Jonah 2, 1 through 2 says this. And this proves what I just said. It says, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord 
The, the King James says he cried out to the Lord. He says, out of my distress. He says, and he answered me, out of the belly of Sheol. Now Sheol, you know, it, it, Sheol is, one meaning of Sheol is pit. And he says, I cried and you heard my voice. So what was the purpose of God putting Jonah in the belly of well? He called him where? To Nineveh? He was headed where? To Tarshish? So Jonah was running as, as far as he could get in the opposite direction of where God wanted him to go. He gets on a ship with a bunch of skilled sailors, and it said they rode hard to get him to shore, but they could not. You cannot get to places that God doesn't want you to go. You can try, you can wear yourself out, you can get somebody that knows how to get there better than you do, but you can't get to where God doesn't want you to go. And it says, in this belly of the well, in this pit, he says, I cried out unto the Lord, and he heard me. And then in Jonah 2, 6, it says, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought me up, brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. You brought me out of the pit. God, you brought me out of the pit. So, so when, did, when did Joseph decide to, be, to quit being a victim? You know, their original intent was to kill him. And they threw him in a pit. You know, what, could it possibly be that while he was down in the pit, he, he starts to rehearse everything in his mind, and he's like, man, they're mean, they're hateful, they did this, they did that. But maybe, possibly, could he just begin to realize, man, these guys hate me. And begin to realize his attitude, and begin to realize his demeanor, and begin to realize what he had done to them that made them hate him so much. Maybe he had a change of heart in the pit. And maybe that's when Judah said, hey, let's just sell him to the slaveholders instead of kill him. Maybe that's when God intervened and said, all right, son, you're seeing what I'm wanting you to talk about. Now let's move on and get you to where you need to be. How many of you ever heard of types and shadows? How many of you know in the Old Testament that there's things that symbolize the things to come in the New Testament? You know, uh, Noah, or, uh, yeah, Noah, you know, in the flood, the, flat, the flood symbolizes the baptism. Uh, there's, there's what we call the types of Christ. In other words, it's, they weren't Jesus, but there were foreshadows of Jesus who is to come. Uh, I want you to go to uh, Genesis 37, 22. 22 says this, And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into the pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand and restore them to his father. Now let's look at this, okay? Reuben was the firstborn. Reuben was the oldest. Reuben, no doubt, should have been jealous of Joseph, because why? He should have, had, he should have been his daddy's favorite. He should have been the number one man. He was the, the right. He was the rightful to the blessings and the promise and all that as, the, as the, the oldest firstborn, okay? But you know what? He said, you know what? Even though this isn't the way it's going, what did it say that he did? He said that he spared him. He said he put him in there. He says that he might rescue him and restore him to his father. You see, Reuben, like I said, was actually the firstborn. But what does the Bible say about Jesus? It says that Jesus in Colossians was the firstborn of many. Jesus was the firstborn of many. You see, God, when, when, when Jesus was crucified on the cross, God actually gave Jesus in faith that some would accept him. 
and become His children. And you know what? Jesus, just like Reuben, did the exact same thing for us. As dirty and as selfish and as rotten as we are, while we were yet sinners, Christ still died for us. But Jesus, Jesus desires this, that He might rescue us and restore us to His Father. Amen? That's the same thing that Reuben did, and there's a picture of Jesus in that. But also, Joseph, Joseph was a, a, a big type of Christ in his life. Uh, the similarities, first of all, are this, is, is that both Joseph and Jesus were stripped of their robes. Secondly, both were sold for 20 pieces of silver. Now, this is historically studied. Uh, the brothers sold Joseph for 20 pieces of silver, it said, but they sold him for a profit. And historically, they said roughly that a slave at that time would go for 30 pieces of silver. How much was Jesus sold? 30 pieces of silver. I mean, that's, that's kind of study. That's not sheer fact, but it's similar, and it, you know, and it's, it, it ties in there. Uh, the Midianite traders that were bringing Joseph to, uh, to Egypt said they, were, they had balm, spices, and myrrh. What, what did they bring when they came to embalm Jesus, when they came to the tomb? Balm, spices, and myrrh. Joseph was betrayed by who? Judah. And Jesus was betrayed by who? Judas. Same root word in the Hebrew language. But Joseph uh, was in a pit, and Jesus. How many of you know that Jesus, the Bible says, when he dies, says he, is, he descended down into the pit. And what did he do? He said he set the captives free. And what is the whole purpose of, 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 of pits? It's so that we can seek God, so that we could be freed. And also, he said he got the keys of the kingdom. And so we see Reuben, you know, acting like Jesus. We see, we see Joseph being a type of Christ here. But Jesus went to the pit, so you didn't have to. Jesus went to the Sheol, so you didn't have to. Jesus died and paid a ransom, so you didn't have to. Because Jesus being God's first son, Jesus being perfect, Jesus being the original heir, he could have looked at us and said, to heck with all y'all, I'm going to get what's mine. But you know what? He laid himself down unselfishly so that we didn't have to suffer. Psalm 16.10, it says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. This is David in Psalms. And you know what? This is prophetically about Jesus. Jesus had to descend, descend into Sheol, but God would not leave him there. You know what? God does not intend to leave us in the pit. God does not intend to leave us without hope. God's desire is that we can be rescued. God's desire is that we can be restored back unto him. And that is Jesus' same desire. And that's why Jesus came and did what he wanted to do. So today I ask you this. How many of you say, I'm in a pit? How many of you today say, you know what, I'm in a pit, and you're mad at everybody, you've got Satan's perspective, you're not looking at God's perspective, you're not rejoicing, you're not, you're not looking towards the Father, maybe you've taken, maybe you've put more, uh, you're, you're more vested into your gift than you are the God who gave you the gift. But what is the Holy Spirit speaking to you today? Maybe some of you have been in a pit, pit maybe, you're, maybe you're in a financial pit, you know, and you're like, you know, I... I I don't know what's going on. Are you, are you trusting God the way we talk about during offering and tithes? Do you give to God trusting Him? Maybe you're in a financial pit because you don't trust God with your finances. Maybe your, pit's in, maybe your marriage is in, in a pit because you know, Satan is beginning to lie to you and say, this isn't the woman that you're supposed to be with. And you begin to believe these things. But you know what? There's so many pits that we can be in 
But here's the thing. Why are you in the pit? Whose perspective are you in the pit? And are you crying out to God? Because so many times we get in trouble and what we do is we begin to plot and devise and rely on ourselves on God or, or, or rely on ourselves on getting ourselves out of mess instead of relying on God. So everybody bow your head and close your eyes. I want to ask you this question today. How many of you, through the Word today, see that you need to cry out to God to get out of the pit? How many of you would say that today? Just lift your hands. Amen? So what are you going to do? Are you going to be a victim? Or are you going to say, God, help me get out of this pit? Guys, if, we're not, if we don't trust God, if we don't read His Word and follow through, we can't expect Him to show up and save us when we're not listening. God wants us to depend solely upon Him because He loves us. God wants, God wants what's best for us, but God, God wants to bless us, but not at the expense of the relationship with Him. God's more concerned about your relationship with Him. God's more concerned about your heart being dependent and trusting and loving towards Him. So some people say, oh, God's not worried about blessings. Yeah, He is. Because He loves you. And He likes to spoil us sometimes. But what's so dear to God's heart is that you see Him for who He is. And that you respond to who He is. And not turn your eyes off of Him. You know, not, not, not go off and Him have to say, well, you're going to have to spend some time in the pit. Spend some time in the belly of the well before you can realize who I am to you again. There's no need in living like that. So today, I'm going to get William just to lead us in a short song of worship. If today you want to cry unto the Lord, say, God, help me out of this pit. I want you to come today. Just go to the altars and say, Lord, today I'm turning my eyes to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Everybody stand. And if that's you, come. Y'all respond. If you raise your hand, respond. Don't be proudful. But come and say, Lord, today I want to put my hope in you.